It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Trump may be facing another round of federal indictments. Maybe two of them. Maybe imminently. Re-indicted? Re-re-indicted. The grand jury that indicted Donald Trump last Thursday for his attempts to stop the transfer of presidential power was seen at the Prettyman Courthouse yesterday. And not for picture day or an alumni reunion, they were there, according to a report by Politico, convened again, meeting, hearing evidence of some kind about something. We do not know about what. If you can keep all of them straight, you may remember that after Trump was indicted in the stolen classified documents case, a superseding indictment on the documents was issued. And not only was Trump re-indicted, but a third defendant, Carlos de Oliveira, the, the boss wants the server deleted guy, he was added to the Jack Smith rogues gallery. Frankly, there have been so many Trump indictments and so many Trump indictment stories and so much Trump indictment news that if I did not keep a spiral notebook about all of it, I don't think I would be able to keep it all straight. First documents, second documents, coup. Lord, it's like I'm rattling off the titles of the books of the Bible. It can cloud the sense that Jack Smith had clearly established three overlapping but separate types of investigations. Documents, coup, and financial fraud involving Trump's various PACs and his fundraising pitches to the suckers and cultists out there to send him money to help fix the stolen election that he knew damn well was not stolen. Jack Smith's grand jury has not handed up any indictments on any of that latter money stuff yet, and it might be the easiest to prove. 
Politico now quotes the lawyer for the ex-con, ex-New York City Police Chief Bernie Carrick, as saying his interview with the Smith team on Monday was filled with questions about, quoting the reporters, Save America PAC's enormous fundraising haul in the weeks between Election Day and the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol, unquote. The reporters quote the attorney Tim Parlatori as saying it's a laser focus from Election Day to January 6th. But then, and I don't want to insult Kyle Cheney or Betsy Woodruff of Politico. I mean, they have stuff that the New York Times report last night on the Carrick interview does not even mention. But I think the significance of the rest of what the attorney Tim Parlatori said may not have fully hit them. Parlatori went on to describe the rest of his client Carrick's chat with the Smiths. And it isn't about fundraising and scamming. It's about stopping the peaceful transfer of power. Jack Smith is still investigating stopping the peaceful transfer of power. He's going to indict him again. Quote, Parlatori said Smith's team didn't ask any questions about Jenna Ellis or about Mark Meadows. The team did ask a few questions about Boris Epstein, and the investigators asked multiple questions about Justin Clark, who was deputy campaign manager of Trump's re-election bid, unquote. Wait, Justin Clark? New shooter! Justin Clark, the lawyer at the fringes who was working the room pushing the Brett Kavanaugh nomination? The one with no visible neck? That Justin Clark? I mean, Jenna Ellis, we know. Mark Meadows flipped. Duh. Boris Epstein is Maggie Haberman's pick for unindicted co-conspirator six, as Bernie Carrick is my pick for six. But Justin Clark? After mentioning that towards the middle of 2021, Giuliani and his crew tried to convince Trump to use Save America PAC funds to pay Rudy, Politico adds, quote, there was significant tension between Justin Clark and Rudy Giuliani over Trump's strategy of contesting the results in Georgia. Carrick described to the special counsel's team a contentious phone call where Giuliani yelled at Clark and called him a liar, Parlatori said. So what is that about? Money? The attempt to coerce the Georgia Secretary of State to fraudulently create fake votes for Trump on the phone, the recorded phone call? Both? Did Rudy say anything about owning those breasts? More indictments cometh, and that right soon. Re-indicted. Prepare for it. Meanwhile, in the indictments we already have, Trump has pre-contempted a court order that hasn't been issued yet. And Judge Tanya Chutkin was nice enough to slap his attorney sideways on another matter. Trump first. Wyndham, New Hampshire, in one of those, anybody ever tell him that anything you say can and will be used against you moments? There's no gag order. There's not even a protective order on sensitive evidence yet, and Trump has already convicted himself of contempt of court. They take away your rights on First Amendment. Now they sue because they're... So now I have one of these lunatic reporters back there saying, Sir, would like to talk to you about your case. Or, or, I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to talk about it. Somehow that's not good for votes. Do you agree? When we say, I can't talk, I'd love to t- I will talk about it. I will. They're not taking away my First Amendment. Well, Sure. Talk about it. 
talk about it, and then you are in contempt of court. And the judge will just expand the restrictions, and sooner or later, she'll expand them so much that she will have no other choice but to put your ass in jail. It's now inevitable. I would wonder why his lawyers are not warning him about this, like that would work, but it turns out these new lawyers are bigger idiots than the last new lawyers. Easy timeline here over the last weekend and a couple of days. On social media, Trump threatened everybody on Friday. Special counsel asks judge for a protective order to keep Trump from, you know, using the evidence to dox witnesses. Judge asks Trump's lawyers for a response to that. Trump's lawyers ask for a delay. Judge refuses. Trump's lawyers give the response. Smith responds. Judge then gives Trump's lawyers the hearing they wanted. Judge tells them and Smith to agree on two dates for the hearing, Friday or earlier. Submit them to her by yesterday afternoon. So it's yesterday afternoon, and Smith says, anytime Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. John Loro and Todd Blanche, the Trump lawyers, say, uh, next Monday or Tuesday, neither of which is before Friday. So Trump's lawyers ignore what the judge asks for and sends her something else. So she steamrolls them and schedules the hearing anyway on Friday. Be there. Aloha. By the way, dollars to donuts. One or both of Trump's lawyers don't show Friday. And then Trump can claim the judge has gagged him without his attorneys being present. The old kill your parents and cry that you're an orphan ploy which Trump had already done yesterday in New Hampshire. I'm sorry to play you two clips of Dementia J, but you have to hear this to set up the punchline. Is this going to be the future of elections in America where a sitting president tells his, tells his attorney general to indict the opponent, to try and knock the opponent down? Yes. We wouldn't want a new tradition of the attorney general of the United States indicting the president's likely election opponent. Oh, wait, who was it again who went on Fox in October 2020 and demanded that his attorney general indict Joe Biden and Obama? All right. This Trump is so effed up, he doesn't even remember all his past threats. Okay, back to re-indictment. Mentioned yesterday that the logistical tea leaves confirmed. Fonnie Willis is going to the Fulton County Grand Jury for the Georgia indictments presently, but no earlier than tomorrow. Now, ABC, The New York Times, and The Guardian, probably others, are all reporting it'll probably be next week. The Times uses the same divining rod that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution used yesterday. Two subpoenaed witnesses confirmed they had not gotten the follow-up notice that they need to show up. The one that arrives 48 hours before you have to show up. So that means they could not get them now until today, Wednesday, which would mean a grand jury hearing Friday. But they're not starting this on Friday. So next week, Guardian says as early as Tuesday. The Atlanta paper may have the best tidbit about this. Roads are already closed around the courthouse. And by the way, as I recall the details of the new Fonnie Willis grand jury, it was one of two grand juries, and the meeting days were not the Tuesday-Thursday schedule of the federal court in D.C., but a Monday-Tuesday-Thursday-Friday schedule, or whatever that is worth. 
And of course, besides getting re-indicted, Trump has already set himself up for a gag order in Georgia or maybe a defamation suit. Four years ago, Fonnie Willis was a defense attorney, and briefly she was a defense attorney for a rapper calling himself YSL Mondo. The Trump campaign uncovered this and unused the same magic wand with which Trump has skated through life. You know, two and three are practically the same number, so let's just say two and three are the same number. And if two and three are the same number, well then two and three placed next to each other, well that's the same as two or three. Therefore the number two is exactly the same as the number 23. Thus, Fonnie Willis used to be YSL Mundo's attorney. She does not announce this to the entire world first thing every morning. Therefore she's hiding it. Therefore she was hiding a relationship with a rapper and... Therefore, all rappers are gang members. Therefore, she's a DA. She prosecutes gang members. Therefore, she was, quote, caught hiding a relationship with a gang member she was prosecuting. But wait, there's more. Now, Trump sees this and sees one word and one word alone, relationship. And that means only one thing to him. Waka, waka, waka. They say, I guess they say that... She was after a certain gang, and she ended up having an affair with the head of the gang or a gang member. And this is a person that wants to indict me. Donald Trump is trash. Pure human garbage. Re-indict. Of course, this whole 78 counts and counting thing against Trump is just going to go away because Matt Gates has just figured out how to get him out of all this. Quote, you can actually bring Trump in to give testimony before Congress and in doing so, immunize him. Gates told this to one of the right-wing streaming propagandists, the one with the Charlie Brown balloon head, I think. And even he was not buying this. When has this been done before, he asked. Gates answered cheerfully, it hasn't. And it hasn't because a grant of immunity by Congress means they can't use what you say at your congressional hearing in any prosecution of you. It doesn't mean they can't prosecute you. It's not a pardon. Besides, even if they did do something that cockamamie, what is Trump going to reveal? What is he going to testify to that he could then wipe off the prosecutorial blackboard? Is he going to tell the truth? He doesn't even remember he demanded that Bill Barr indict Joe Biden late in the 2020 campaign. And there's one more thing about Trump indicted and re-indicted and re-re-indicted. We appear to be seeing the law of diminishing returns finally kicking in, thank God. I've already mentioned here that the Trump fundraising windfall after the first Jack Smith indictment was only about half of the windfall after the Alvin Bragg indictment. Now, Axios has analyzed Google Trends for the various Trump indictments. The scale on Google Trends is from a minimum of one to a maximum of 100. The Mar-a-Lago search was a 65 out of 100. The Stormy Daniels indictment announcement, that banged the gong, 100. The classified documents indictment was a 52. And the early data on the coup indictments, the Google Trend number of 42. So let him be re-indicted. The financial benefit is waning and... It... Wait. Have I said re-indicted like, like eight times already? 
what is this? Why is this word preying on my brain? Reindicted. Reindicted. <gasps> oh, I feel a song coming on. Oh, Nancy. Reindicted and it feels so good. Reindicted like it's smiling wood. There's one perfect fit and sugar prison is it. The country's so excited cause he's reindicted. Hey, hey. Thank you, Nancy Faust. <laughs> I don't know how I get away with it every day. I really don't. Also of interest here, obviously, issue one fails in Ohio. The Republican push, more correctly, the Republican push to make it tougher to amend the state constitution, designed specifically to make it more difficult to protect abortion in Ohio, rejected. Issue one fails. Why, look, I just poked it with a stick. Democracy is still breathing. And listen, listen to this from the home park of the Baltimore Orioles baseball team and their suspended announcer, Kevin Brown. And they are freeing Kevin Brown. He is coming back to the Orioles booth. About a dozen baseball broadcasters went on the air and pancaked the Baltimore Orioles for this madness. But the bad news is a lot of other broadcasters wanted to do so, but were afraid to. Because this premise that the job of a TV sports play-by-play man is to say only positive things about his team or he will be beaten severely, this is rapidly taking hold in baseball and basketball and hockey, and that's why you heard all the announcers say what they did in defense of Kevin Brown, because ask not for whom the bell tolls. That's next. This is Countdown. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market. 
as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. This is SportsCenter. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, Baltimore Orioles play-by-play announcer Kevin Brown will come off the secret suspension list and rejoin his broadcast Friday. And if you think this indicates that the tsunami of bad publicity and genuine indignation over the team's punishment somehow affected authoritarian CEO John Angelos of the Orioles. Nope, nothing gets through to him. Brown's non-suspension suspension, which was clearly supposed to be two weeks, was supposed to end Friday anyway. Two weeks. If you somehow missed this story, Mr. Brown read the statistics on a full-screen graphic showing how much better the Baltimore Orioles have been. I'll repeat that word, better this year against Tampa Bay than in years past. The graphic was produced by the team's broadcast crew. The statistics were produced by the team's media relations department. And Brown was suspended for mentioning what it said on the graphic, that the Orioles used to lose more than they do now to Tampa Bay. It's madness. And it's not just important because it reflects what happens when rich, vulgar, unintelligent, messianic people who have enough money to threaten the jobs of anybody who works for them do that. It's also not just important because the Orioles and CEO Angelos were called out on the air by my friend Gary Cohen of the New York Mets telecasts and my friend Howie Rose of the New York Mets radio broadcasts. And my friends Jason Benetti, who does the White Sox games, and Michael Kay and John Sterling and Susan Waldman, who do the Yankees games, and Kevin Euclid and Dave O'Brien, who do the Red Sox games, and Tom McCarthy of the Phillies, and Kevin Connors and Kevin Nagandi of ESPN, and, and, and. There's something else here that actually pertains to a sea change in what the broadcasts of sports events are now becoming and are now expected to be. This has been happening behind the scenes, Soto Voce 
off the record for the last several years. Not everywhere. Obviously not with those teams which did not blink as their own announcers savaged the Orioles, nor the teams that recognize that if their teams stink and their announcers pretend they don't stink, nobody will believe those announcers anymore, nor watch the broadcasts, nor buy the products the announcers are trying to sell. But since last year, at least, I have been hearing more and more from announcer friends in other sports, some of them genuinely terrified for their own jobs or jobs of their colleagues, from baseball, from basketball, from hockey, not so much football because those are almost all network TV broadcasts. It's all off the record. It's all friend to friend. And they have been telling me that they or their friends have been called in and warned. Warned? Warned. Warned by their teams, often warned by their team's general managers or vice presidents of broadcasting or presidents or owners that not only are they, the announcers, expected to put as positive a spin as possible on what they say about the team, which has largely always been true, but that they now literally cannot acknowledge any problems, past, present, or future, with their teams. In hockey, no penalty against their team is legitimate. In basketball, all the referees are biased against their players. In baseball, no, the replay is wrong, and that pitch was outside, and that next pitch was to a strike. In all sports, every player who was traded away was no good, and every free agent who left the team was disloyal. In sports game broadcasting, there has always been, since the first of them in 1921, a delicate balance between actual reporting and actual salesmanship. My dear late friend Bob Wolf, who announced his first Major League Baseball game in 1947 and who announced his last Major League Baseball old-timers game in 2017, titled his book about baseball broadcasting and the tensions between teams and sponsors and the truth, It's Not Who Won or Lost the Game, It's How You Sold the Beer. Well, now... It's how you sell the team. The Orioles' suspension of Kevin Brown revealed some other things about what the O's have been doing to their announcers. They have been punishing various unnamed announcers per widespread reports all year for things that reek of madness. One Orioles announcer was supposedly reprimanded, maybe even suspended, for saying nice things about a player who used to play for the Baltimore Orioles, but doesn't anymore. Brown's suspension for this Orwellian crime of admitting that the O's have not always been at war with East Asia, or at least that they have not always been winning the war with East Asia, that suspension was reportedly delayed for several days because the Orioles needed Brown to fill in on radio for yet another announcer who had committed the thought crime of not wearing a shirt with an Orioles logo on it, and he had been suspended. It is fitting that this slow but unstoppable conversion of the sports broadcast in many different sports from mix of truth and promotion into pure propaganda and indeed something close to brainwashing bubbled to the surface, at least in terms of general knowledge, because a baseball team, one with the second best record in the game, enjoying a glorious renaissance season, decided to punish its announcers anyway, even though everything is going great. That is fitting because the new ultimate goal, eliminate 
anything that doesn't get people watching to buy more Orioles stuff or tickets or more MLB merchandise or whatever. This started in baseball 20, even 15 years ago. Every one of the news stories on baseball's owned website carried a note at its end. This story was not subject to the approval of Major League Baseball or its clubs. There were a lot of things to complain about during the commissionership of Bud Selig, and God knows I complained about all of them several times, but that wasn't one of them. In 2008, Bud Selig asked me to come work for the MLB website and the new MLB TV network it would launch the next year. Say whatever you want. You know that's my rule, he told me. All I ask is, if it's about me or if it's really harsh about the game, call me, give me a chance to talk you out of it, or at least give me a chance to get you to give my side of it too. We couldn't make the MLB TV network thing work out because I already had three TV jobs, but I worked for MLB.com for four years. I wrote columns for MLB.com because Bud Selig personally hired me. And then, as his time as commissioner was beginning to wind down, he ceded control of the website and the network to others. And soon, that little note about the stories not being subject to the approval of the clubs disappeared. And soon, I wrote something about the owners of the Yankees that the Yankees didn't like, and my column disappeared. And soon after, when MLB Network offered me my own daily show, the offer disappeared within days after the Yankees found out and warned the network president that they would not allow it to happen and would kick all the MLB Network cameras out of Yankee Stadium if it did. And even if you didn't know those inside, really, they only apply to me things, if you last watched the MLB Network in 2009 or 2010 and then you skipped ahead and turned it on today, you would recognize the deterioration in the editorial content within minutes, maybe seconds. There are some pros like Brian Kenny and Adnan Verk who do not carry the new water and sneak in facts, but the rest of them, every team is undefeated. Every baseball player is a superstar. Every player error is just symbolic of their extraordinary effort. Every team punting on its season and trading away its star players to other teams. Why? Why? What an opportunity they're providing for the next stars of the game to emerge. A team starving its franchise and its fans and then abandoning its home city of 55 years to go move somewhere else. Well, that's the dawn of a new era. And who knows? It might also be an opportunity for an expansion team in the abandoned city. MLB Network, which you used to be able to watch for more than an hour at a time, is 90% of the time now useless. It is uninsightful propaganda because you can never say anything negative. Everybody is perfect. It does not seek to inform. It barely seeks to entertain. It is there to get you to buy stuff. Winter before last, Bud Selig's successor as baseball commissioner, Rob Manfred, fired MLB Network's top reporter, probably baseball's top reporter, Ken Rosenthal, even though Ken Rosenthal is the best part of the Fox Network baseball game broadcasts, including the World Series. 
MLB Network fired a guy who was on the World Series broadcasts every year. And there was no great mystery as to why they would do something that petty and stupid. Rosenthal had been critical of Commissioner Rob Manfred in columns for the website The Athletic. And not only can't you be critical of baseball or Rob Manfred on MLB Network, and by the way, Manfred thinks he and baseball are one and the same, but you can't have been critical of Rob Manfred and then be on MLB Network ever. And now this attitude, the correct word for it is editorial dictatorship. This attitude is overtaking the local broadcasts of baseball games and hockey games and basketball games, and I assume football games on the radio. The last one I heard of those was about 1970. There actually are non-sports implications as well. It's just that much more stuff on television or online or in a streaming service in which the question of whether or not you have just seen something approaching impartial truth is completely out of date and irrelevant. That question has been replaced by another question, whether or not what you have just seen has been enough of an infomercial or if somebody like Kevin Brown has just been screamed at or humiliated or suspended for not selling you hard enough on something. And then there is the more immediate question. All those team broadcasts and broadcasters which correctly vivisected the Orioles on Monday night after Kevin Brown was suspended, or the news got out anyway, how many of those teams and the channels they largely own will be sold to new owners in the years to come? New owners who will think the Orioles were right. And how soon will this happen? And what happens to the honest sportscasters after the sales happen. Still ahead on Countdown, greatest scoop of my career. And the amount of hard work I put into it? Approximately, virtually nothing. Which is, I guess, the karma behind the fact that when they handed out the awards for the stories that year, I lost to a story about Morgana the Kissing Bandit. Ahead. First, time for the Daily Roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. Bronze, Matt, how are things feeling on the Herschel Walker campaign? Schlap. Tweeted a photo of himself on a pretend news studio set with the caption, quote, Newsmax, where we hang out. Watch out, gentlemen. Matt Schlapp is hanging out again. Runner-up Mike Pence, qualified for the Republican debate. Yeah. Could they fight, by the way? Is that possible? Anyway... Pence's spokesman immediately put out a statement taking a shot at Pence's old boss, quote, hopefully former President Trump has the courage to show up, which of course is more or less what Trump said about Pence on January 6th, and which would be a sicker burn if, you know, Pence had at any point in the preceding two and a half years actually done anything about bringing Trump to justice for January 6th. But our winner, Franklin Graham son of the original religious con man, Billy Graham, 
Franklin Graham has now joined the attacks on the U.S. women's national soccer team after its loss in the World Cup. Graham writes, I used to pull for our women's soccer team. Liar. But recently they have shown disrespect for the U.S. Liar. When did they do that? When half of them sang the national anthem and the others stood respectfully silent, you know, the way our military is instructed to do? And they've used their platform to promote the LGBTQ agenda. You mean offering hope to the people repressed and bullied by your church? Or the ones who are closeted in your church? Who convince themselves they can't be gay because they are helping you bully gays? When players think it is more about them than the nation they represent, you mean like when phony millionaire preachers think it is more about them and their prophets than their supposed deity, and especially his message of love and tolerance and support? Con man, utter naked fraud, Franklin Graham. If there really was a Jesus, and he comes back now, he's going to punch you in the face. Franklin Graham, today's worst person in the world. Amen. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never 
going to come. Well, the Challenge Gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just ahead, it was the story I broke that garnered the greatest amount of publicity I ever got for one of these. It was also the story I broke that I worked the least to break. All I did was answer the freaking phone a couple of times. Gretzky Day, next. First time to feature another dog in need, you can help, every dog has its day, to Milo in Spring Hill, Tennessee. The pictures are difficult to look at, Milo was found on the streets by House of Strays, an otherwise ordinary brown and white mutt with a bleeding tumor. They took him in. They got him started on chemo. The first results, a couple of weeks later, are now in from the first treatments. The mass is smaller. He could survive this. And he has that most obvious signal of the dog who may make it, a prodigious appetite. Milo's best bet is our donations, You can do so and find him at cuddly.com or check my Twitter feeds for Milo. Milo thanks you. And I thank you. Finally, our number one story on the countdown, things I promised not to tell, and back to my favorite topic, me. This is 34 years ago, so it was August 8th, 1988 on the West Coast, but by the time I got the story on the air at 10 p.m. PDT and it made all the wires, that made it August 9th, 1988, so happy double-day anniversary, Wayne Gretzky. Just after dinner, the phone rang in my office at Channel 5 in L.A. Hi, I'm a viewer. I took a deep breath. You you never knew where a call that started like that was going to end up. I just wanted you to know, I, I was out golfing at Riviera, at the Riviera Club this afternoon, and, and Bruce McNall, the owner of the Kings, well, he just walked through the locker room saying, hey, guys, if you want to buy your season Kings tickets, do it now. I just traded for Wayne Gretzky. The price is going to go up next week. To be polite to the viewer, I asked a few questions, but frankly, the story was pretty stupid. This was the second week of August 1988, and there was a lot of talk that the Edmonton Oilers were going to trade Wayne Gretzky, the most famous player in hockey, and there was nearly as much talk that that trade would send him to us in L.A. But the owner of the Kings, just telling passersby at random in a golf clubhouse that he had just made the trade... I was suspicious that I was being pranked. Fifteen minutes later, my phone rang again. Hi, I'm a big fan of yours, and I watch every night. Ah, oh, here we go again. I was just having lunch with a friend of mine out here at the golf course in Bel Air, and, and like an hour later, freaking Bruce McNall shows up in the dining room and asks for everybody's attention, and he says he's just completed the deal for Wayne Gretzky, and... 
And now I was beginning to get actually worried. I was a lame duck as the sports director of Channel 5 in Los Angeles, and for months there had been rumors that I was moving down the street to Channel 2 in Los Angeles. There had been these rumors mostly because I was moving down the street to Channel 2. The deal had been done months earlier. We were going to announce it that week. In fact, as these two guys called in, I had actually been busily packing up my Channel 5 office. My thought now was that the sportscaster at the local NBC station, who had a bit of a substance problem and a nasty temper and a real dislike for the fact that I was nearly as popular as he was, was setting me up. I had once managed to mislead him into thinking we were about to break a story about a big L.A. football trade. There was no breaking story because there was no trade. And he had actually mentioned it on the air, having clearly stolen it from me because I was the one who had made it up. And oh, was he furious at me. For all I knew, he wanted to embarrass me three weeks before I moved into direct competition with him at 5, 6, and 11. This August 8th, 1988 was, in fact, my first day back after I had burned all my Channel 5 vacation time. And for all I knew, this guy at NBC had been having his staffers call me for a week with made-up sightings of McNall confirming a Gretzky trade that, frankly, I never believed was going to happen. I mean, not to get too sidetracked here, but one day my phone rang and it was a kid who said, Hi, Mr. Elberman. I'm sorry, but I'm a finalist to be an intern here at Channel 4 for Fred Rogan. And Mr. Rogan says I can have the spot, but only if I call you up right now and say, I'm sorry, if I call you up and I tell you to go F yourself. The kid did not say F. To his credit, he used his real name, Bill Weir, he later became a sportscaster for the third network station in L.A., then a correspondent for ABC and now CNN, and I have not let a year go by since without reminding him of his F-yourself internship phone call. He said life paid him back by making him work with the guy for several months. Anyway, back to Gretzky night. Two supposed listeners have called to say that Bruce McNall, the owner of the L.A. Kings, is apparently traipsing through golf locker rooms and dining rooms at country clubs to tell them he has completed a trade for the Babe Ruth of hockey, Wayne Gretzky, and they're calling me because they like me. I'm suspicious. And now the phone rings again. This guy was playing golf at the L.A. Country Club. Same story. McNall, buy your Kings tickets now. I just got Gretzky. The next caller had been at yet a fourth club, I think Wilshire or something. If this was a prank, it was a big one, and bluntly, I had begun to admire it. Finally came a fifth call. You don't know me, but I, I watch you every night, and I, I stumbled onto a story I think you'll want to run tonight. I said, which golf course were you at? And he said, excuse me? I was in my office all day, and, and so, so was my... Uh, my missus, she's on the phone with me. She, she works for Bruce McNall, the Kings. This time I grabbed a pencil. Honey, why don't you take it from here? And she did. She worked in the finance office, and she had literally, she said, just made out a check for $15 million to the owner of the Edmonton Oilers, Peter Pocklington. She said, and the note memo where you write, write what it's for, I was told to put in Wayne Gretzky. She also had seen the trade contract identified the players the Kings were going to give up with the $15 million to get Gretzky. They were Jimmy Carson and Martin Jelena. There were also draft choices, but she didn't know or didn't remember the specifics of which ones. 
Now breathless, I asked her if I could call her back through the switchboard of the L.A. Forum where the King's and McNall's offices were just to confirm she was who she said she was. She said I could. I did. She was. I believe, in fact, she turned out to be the only person on the McNall financial team that did not get charged with something. So now I went in to talk to my news director and to the producer of our newscast. We were not on until 10 p.m. It was now about 7. They were very excited. And they said that given that I had exact details from a King's source, plus the four witnesses to the owner of the team shooting off his big bazoo at every golf course he could reach, that we should run it and that we should run it as the lead news story right at the start of the newscast that night, which we did. The Kings would not confirm it, obviously, but as soon as I got off the air with my sportscast, the second time I reported this story, a reporter from the Associated Press was on the phone asking me to read him my script, which he then quoted word for word and put out on their sports wire. It was on the back page of the New York Post the next day. My friends called me from New York to say, hey, your sportscast is on the back page of the New York Post along with this big picture of Wayne Gretzky. The leak caused the Kings to move up the announcement of the deal from their original plan, which was Thursday the 11th, to the next night, Tuesday the 9th. A Kings vice president told me at the press conference that the Oilers were enraged because they had wanted to hold off until the 11th because the deadline for their season ticket holders to get their deposits back were Wednesday the 10th. The Kings were nice enough to let me, of all the TV guys, interview Gretzky first live, and I congratulated Wayne on the move, and he actually congratulated me on the scoop, and I said I didn't do anything but answer the phone, and he thought about it for a second and said, pretty much the same for me, and we've been friendly ever since. But the laziest scoop of all time did eventually come back with a sting for me and some payback. A year later, we all submitted our best stories for consideration for the local Emmy for Best TV Sports Reporting for the calendar year 1988. I submitted, surprise, surprise, the Gretzky scoop. The Emmys were always judged by a committee of television types from a different city, so you didn't have that home L.A. bias. And the guy from NBC who I had first thought was pranking me about the Gretzky story had somehow found out that the Emmys for 1988 would be judged in 1989 in Ohio, in Columbus, Ohio, I think. So he managed to get an interview with Morgana the Kissing Bandit, who was this scantily clad buxom woman, you may remember, who in the old days of innocence used to bribe her way onto Major League Baseball fields and bounce out onto the plate or the mound, and she'd go and kiss stars like George Brett and Nolan Ryan during games. Morgana, Morgana Roberts, lived near Columbus, Ohio, so sure enough, at the Emmys the next year, my exclusive report of the trade of hockey's greatest player, Wayne Gretzky, was one of the finalists for the Los Angeles Best TV Sports Reporting Emmy. But in the ceremony, and it was at some old landmark hotel in Pasadena, they showed clips of all the pieces that were finalists and then announced that the winner was Fred Rogan, KNBC, for being chased by Morgana the Kissing Bandit. My agent stood up and booed. My girlfriend punched me in the arm and said, let's get out of here and go drinking. We left.
done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. You heard them for Every Dog Has Its Day. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis and appears courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments from Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend John Dean. Everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 945th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him again while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Reunited and it feels so good. Reunited like it's violin wood. There's one perfect fit and sugar prison is it. The country's so excited cause he's reunited. Hey, hey. Thank you, Nancy Faust. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.